sometimes doing things yourself is, you know, quicker. I change my own oil mainly because it saves me more time. Now, I mean, I used to have to go there, sit in the room. They took like 50 minutes. Usually there's another person in front of you. You know, you just feel like kind of turdy because you don't know how to do it yourself. And then I taught myself and, you know, now I can do it in my driveway in like 30 minutes. I drink a beer while I'm doing it, listen to some rock music, and I feel more like a man. I like doing it. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaires and Vote podcast. This is episode number 139. Clark, what's going on? How you doing? I'm doing well. 139, getting close to 150, which will be fun here. Yeah, I know. We've got, I think we've got all those in the pipeline already through the summer. We're putting it together and looking at our calendar for the rest of the summer and, and part of the fall. Just definitely got some exciting things happening in the MU world uh, with our new website coming online and a bunch of other things. I'm excited. How about you? Yeah, yeah, it's cool. And then one of the other guest interviews, or we have a few guest interviews coming up, but one of the ones we're excited about is Chris Hogan will be coming on shortly and he'll be doing a book giveaway with, I believe, two or three copies of, of his books, both Retired, Inspired, and Everyday Millionaire. So that'll be fun to have him on a show. We had him on, what, a year ago maybe now it's been? Yeah, it's been a little while. I think it was almost prior to his book line. I'm trying to remember exactly, but it's been I think, yeah, while. it was it was your time to when his book came out, and I think I think it was a year ago or so. But anyway, I was today I was looking at, at some news, and I, I keep coming across Hertz, right? I think Hertz has been in the news a lot because it went bankrupt and then the stock popped, and So I bought Hertz along with cruise stocks and airlines and kind of took a little bit of a gamble on it and bought it at, I think, like $4 maybe. And and it just kept slowly trickling down. I mean, it was at, I think, 22 at the high a year ago or something. So I bought it at 4 bucks. It went down, it went down, it went down. Then they announced bankruptcy. And everything I was reading online was, oh, shoot, get out of it. Get any equity out of it. You can. So I sold it. For I think seventy <laughs> cents. I mean, it's not much, right? Like a few hundred bucks. They sold it for seventy cents, and then it popped back up to like three fifty or four dollars. I think it even went above where I had bought it for. Anyway, now it's back at a dollar fifty or something. But it's pretty funny. I thought, considering that the, the stock's going bankrupt, but then Avis, on the other hand, if you look at Avis, it's up like a hundred and fifty percent since Hertz announced its, its bankruptcy. So pretty wild. Yeah, it's definitely some wild times for sure in the markets just in general. I know the real estate around here too is is, is going bonkers. I think there's a lot of pent-up demand, a lot of things that, that typically would take a little bit longer to sell have been selling quickly. And if you look at the market, we've kind of had some sort of rebound kind of makes you wonder, you know, I've got some friends that think we're headed towards a crash still, so they're trying to pull everything out. You know, what do you what do you do during these times with, with your own investments? I mean, I'm kind of gambling on some and holding cash on the other. You know, I bought a bunch of these airlines and cruises and travel industry, Expedia, Marriott. I mean, Hertz was the one I lost on, but I am up on, I don't know, 10 or 15 of the others. So, I, I mean, long term, I think they go up. I don't know what happens in six months or a year. I know you talk to some people that think there's going to be a bigger crash, and there very well could be in the short term here. But we'll see. I just read an article that Susie Orman said to have eight months of an emergency fund before this. And now she's saying, huh, like, I told you so. 
You know, I think Dave Ramsey says, what, three to six months, right? Three to six months, yeah. Assume that's what Susie Orman says. I didn't really listen to her, but the article, she says, hey, if you would have listened to me before this, I said eight months of an emergency fund. Yeah. Did your investment strategy change? Have you always been kind of a trader? No, not at all. Not at all. I think it was just really low. And had some opportunities. Yeah, I think the market was down 20, 25, or 30%, maybe 35. I can't remember what just the S&P and the indices went down, but cruises at one point were down 85%. Yeah. And I just, I just thought these aren't going to go bankrupt. And who knows? Maybe I'm wrong, right? I just thought these aren't going to go bankrupt. And now they're up. I don't know. They're, they're down 60%. So they've moved up 35% or so and casinos. So I don't know. I just, I just had some cash laying around and thought I'd take a chance on it and probably got a little bit lucky, but we'll see long term. Yeah. It begs a, an interesting thought of what, if you have opportunities like we just had with the pandemic where the, you know, let's just say the Dow drops below 20,000. You know, I know Mark Cuban was, and I know we mentioned this before, he was buying every single day it was going down and continuing to put more and more in as it was going down. And now that we've rebounded, I mean, that looks like a, a very sound strategy, but it's always hard to tell. It's always a risk. It's gamble. But nonetheless, continue to invest and continue to to put money into the market and real estate and into business. So anyway, today's show, we have Matt. He's a portfolio manager, which begs for an interesting conversation about what we're talking about. He manages money for high net worth individuals and institutions. His net worth is at $1.35 million right now. He's got 320000 in traditional retirement accounts, 350000 in Roth accounts. He's got another 34000 in HSA 377,000 in taxable accounts and another 140 ish in a 529. He's got a paid for house. He's a cash buyer with this house, about 75K, lives in a very low cost of living area. And uh, most of his investments are index funds. Very interesting interview. I'm really excited to have uh, Matt on the show today. And last week we had Ben Hardy. Ben brings a different interview into to our show, and we want to bring him on for a different type of episode. He just released a book called Personality Isn't Permanent, and we get into discussion on that, and his other book called Willpower Doesn't Matter. Shares his insights into daily success habits, help you live an intentional life. He also talks about placing yourself in an environment where success can thrive and, and defining who you want to be, who you're going to be, and how you get there. This episode is sponsored by SaveTheChildren.org. Save the Children believes every child deserves a future. In the United States and around the world, they give children a healthy start in life, the opportunity to learn, and protection from harm. They deliver lasting results for millions of children, including those hardest to reach. Right now, the coronavirus pandemic is the biggest global health crisis of our lifetime. It threatens children in every way. COVID-19 has already left many children without caregivers, out of school, and exposed to violence and exploitation. Child poverty is rising. With your support, we can help children in unsafe households and help support distance learning in the face of school closures. For just $5, you can help. $5 can buy a baby's first book or provide nutritious breakfast and lunch for a child who usually relies on school for food. $10 can nourish an out-of-school child for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. To donate and learn more, head to www.savethechildren.org slash savekids. If you'd like to be on our podcast, send us an email at millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. We're always looking for great millionaires with great stories to tell. We'd love to have you on the show, so send us an email. Also, we have several multifamily opportunities in, in, the, in the pipeline. If you're interested, shoot us an email again, and we'll get on a phone call with you and discuss the opportunities. Without further ado, let's get into the episode today with Matt. Matt, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and kind of what you're up to now? 
Yeah, so I'm a portfolio manager in wealth management. I manage family office wealth, personal clients, institutional assets. I make about $154,000 a year. My wife's a dermatology physician assistant, and she makes about $103,000 a year. Uh, we also make about $2,000 a year from trade lines and about $3,000 a year from credit card sign-up bonuses. Our current net worth is about $1.35 million right now. We're in the midst of moving a house from our townhouse now that we live in to a modest ranch home. We're pretty frugal. Uh, we've lived off of, at certain years, we've, we've lived off as low as $20,000 a year. We live in a pretty low cost of living area. And I'm pretty, I, I like spending less because, you know, I'm all about efficiency. So you know, I'm kind of focused both on how am I getting the best value for my money? Uh, where is it making the most impact in my happiness? And then also about sort of negotiating our salaries upward over the years. We started, I would say we started in 2014 making, I made about 70,000. She made about 75,000. So we've had a, you know, we've roughly in, in really six years increased our income by about 120,000. Dang, right off the bat, man, just giving us the stats. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and and I and I'll tell our listeners too. I mean, I'm not surprised because the 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 spreadsheet that Matt has given us is unreal. I mean, he's got everything tracked from his income, his net worth, to tax calculations, to potential future social security. And I want to get into all this, but first, Matt, let's dive into your net worth. How is that broken up? The 1.3. Yeah, so the 1.3 is broken up about 23 percent, or about 320 thousand, is in a traditional. Uh, mainly in traditional 401ks, 352,000, about 26%, is in Roth IRAs and Roth 401k. 34,000 uh, is in an HSA, that's about 2.5%. 377,000, uh, or about 28%, is in a taxable account. And then 138,000 is in a 529, that's roughly about 10%. Our house was, we bought it at 65000 I estimate it's probably worth about 75000 now. It's a townhouse. That's about 5.5%. And then we both drive pretty old. Uh, my wife drives a 2005 Corolla. I drive a 2011 Camry. I estimate they're worth about $4,000. Uh, and then we've, since I did that tracking, the market's appreciated roughly 48000 Awesome. And, and the money that's invested in the markets and your taxable and your, and your Roth and your uh, 401ks, is that primarily in index funds, mutual funds, individual stocks? Yeah, it's pretty much in index funds. Uh, and I would say it's roughly 72% stocks right now, 28% bonds. Some of that's just reserves for our, our house purchase because I'm a cash buyer in it. So I set aside 150. Some of it's just because I feel like you almost have a risk kind of curve you know, when you don't have a lot of money, you kind of tend to be a little bit more, uh, especially if you're knowledgeable, willing to take risk. And I think once you get to a certain level, that's still not, you know, a massive amount of money, but it's kind of makes you feel a lot more comfortable. You kind of back off. And then I see a lot of my clients that have way more than they'll ever need. They sort of that that kind of goes right back to them being very aggressive at that point. So I would say I'm kind of in that middle ground, even though I'm not I'm still allocated pretty aggressively. It's all in index funds, mainly the S&P 500 index, the total stock market index. I also have a slight growth tilt. It's, it's pretty U.S. biased. There's no international allocations. That's just my personal um, and a, kind of our firm's view on the success of international investing and our, my philosophy that it's really just not, not a great spot to, 
to grow money internationally. Um, I think really the U.S. just has the right culture, the right rules. Uh, even though people say, you know, look, look at the valuations. You know, I, I still think the quality of the companies and sort of the composition of the U.S. market versus other markets is really, really good. I mean, you don't really see too many Apples or Googles coming out of Europe or China. So to me, you know, at least that are that high of quality. So to me, the U.S. is a really good spot. I'm a little bit tech biased, but, you know, overall, it's, it's pretty much indexes. Totally makes sense. And you said you're a cash buyer on the on the real estate. So did you buy your town home in cash, and then you're planning to buy this this ranch home in cash as we well? We actually bought the townhouse in. Uh, we just did a loan for the townhouse, uh, but because the market wasn't really hot right then, it didn't matter, and the market wasn't as as high as it is now. So to me, you know, there was a lot more opportunity cost for sticking that much in principal, even though it's only seventy five. To me, it was a lot of money at the time. And, uh, you know, now it's, I think it's the market's a little bit higher. The opportunity cost in my mind is a lot less uh, for sticking that much in principle. And the market where I'm at is a lot hotter. So we only won this because we were a cash buyer. So we're, we're just packing up stuff in tubs, really, and trying to sell our townhouse now. And, and you don't have any plans to keep that and rent it out and, and get into the real estate game at all? I thought about that. You know, I definitely, definitely was in the back of my head. Why not rent it out? It's just right now, I work quite a bit. I drive quite a bit for work. It's not a normal work schedule like a lot of people's probably is. Uh, you know, sometimes I'm in the office at nine. You know, sometimes I have to do dinners at seven, do dinners at eight. Sometimes I, I'll drive like basically drive three hours in the morning, have a 30 minute meeting, drive three hours back. So it's, it'd be tough, I think. And sometimes the driving just makes you, I think, more tired. Than you naturally would be. So I don't know that I just have the energy for it yet. I think maybe if I change careers or get a better work to life balance, that would be something that I would consider. But just right now, it, for the the ROI and the cap rates where they're at, it, it's you know I factor in the time that I might have to spend, and it's not that I would know, but uh, it might not have to spend much of any time if you get great tenants. But I'm just not there yet. Yeah. I probably will get someday. So how, just jumping back to this cash thing, how much cash are you holding? Uh, roughly right now, about 350000 And how much is this new house? About 150 So kind of a 200 cushion there. Is, is yeah. that because you think the market's hot or just security? or? I any? would say, yeah, the market's a little hot, but I mean, it's hard to time it. I would say it's more right. of a long term, don't want to be 100% equities at this point. It's not too much you know, net of the, the house purchase. That that's really sitting in cash, but yeah, it's a decent. Getting a little nervous. I made you kind of. Also, it's kind of like you've won. I've got to the net worth where I, you know, I don't because my expenses are so low, and this is probably rare because I don't. I think most people probably need at least two million to be financially independent, but I'm pretty much financially independent at one point three four. So to me, it's or one point three five. So to me, it's it's like. Uh, any additional money will go into stocks, but it's not bad to have a little bit of a cushion there. Sure. So how come you're buying? I'm just curious because I, th I think some of the millionaires we not I think I know some of the millionaires we've interviewed have different uh, thoughts on this. But how come you're paying all cash for the house versus putting a mortgage on it? Yeah. So, you know, I'm definitely not a debt averse person. That's for sure. But at this point, if I want my overall allocation to be something like 70, 30 in stocks and bonds, I kind of look at debt 
like almost like a negative bond. So when, you know, I don't have debt, it's like I'm buying a bond. You know, interest rates right now are pretty, pretty good. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, when I kind of look at it from a taxable standpoint, you know, yes, interest rates might be 3%, but that's after tax money that's paying the interest. So really, you know, divided by one minus my tax rate, it's really closer to maybe a four, four and a half, five percent return, sort of a taxable equivalent return. You know, if you found a bond that was paying five percent, it's not a bad consideration to buy that bond. So that's kind of how I almost equivocate debt with bonds. I would say, you know, now just given where the market's at, I just don't view long-term U.S. equity returns as being a lot higher than maybe five to six percent returns going forward. Given that if you look at the variability, obviously debt debt returns are guaranteed by having it paid off. So from a risk reward standpoint right now, the trade-off to me makes sense. You know, it's certainly no one knows what stocks are gonna return, what bonds are gonna return. I look at long-term CAPE ratios and you know, even given I kind of adjust, I look at what Vanguard does adjusting them for interest rates, but even with that. I don't see, you know, I certainly don't see 10% returns continuing. I see a lot closer to 5 to 6% returns over the next 10, 15 years. So to me, if I'm getting a taxable equivalent yield of 5% thereabouts by not by buying cash, it's really not bad considering it's a guaranteed return. Yeah, yeah, good answer. So let's just jump back here, Matt, from the beginning. How did this all start? Because you're relatively young, right? You have a, a really high income. You have a high net worth for your age. How did this all start? Earlier, you, you know, you kind of mentioned you started putting money in your Roth at 17. Maybe just kind of talk to us a little bit from the beginning. Yeah, yeah. So my dad lost his job and and basically said, you know, I had a girlfriend at the time who's now my wife, and I basically she basically said you know, you're, you want to go do something you want to do, you know, go out to eat or whatever, go, go to movies. That's all on you. So you're going to get a job. So I applied, got a job at McDonald's working as a cashier. Did not like that job. It was a tough job. It's really, I mean, I got to give it to people in fast food. You know, people make it seem like it's not a tough job, but it is hard work. You smell like grease at the end of the day. You know, it's, it's brutal. Uh, and (laughs) you know, there is times where, you know, I had to climb through play place, kid crap themselves. I had to wipe that up. You know, it was, it's hard work. And I saw, you know, on the weekends, we would see older people who would work part time there trying to make additional money in retirement. And there's a 70 year old woman that she, she was, she said to me, like, oh, yeah, I click, you know, people crap themselves all the time. I'm cleaning that up. And I just, you know, that kind of really struck me that I don't want to be 70 years old. And, you know, be doing half having to, to work, you know, in my golden years, come in and clean up other literally clean up other people's crap off seats. You know, I, 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 I wasn't working hard in high school at the time. So to me, it was a it's a big wake up call that I needed to change my life and start, you know, actually focusing on my future. So, you know, that night that I remember going home and just doing retirement research, I actually did it right on the IRS's website. And then I eventually Googled around, found getrichslowly.com. Then on from there, I found like the Bogleheads forum, uh, did some research, found out that, hey, Vanguard's not a bad spot to go. Index funds are pretty good if you don't know what you're doing. Um, and that's kind of how I, how I got started with just some of my extra McDonald's money, really. Wow. Good for you. And, and that's how I kind of figured out that maybe, you know, 
financial, you know, personal finance is what I really like doing. You know, so dad told me not to start the Roth IRA. I said, Hey, you're going to need that money for your expenses and you're, you're expected to pay for you know, all your food, all your books in college, I'll cover tuition, which is really nice. But he, he basically could see I was going to have a lot of expenses. Not, not that Roth IRA was a bad idea, but just I was going to have a lot of expenses. But, you know, I, I kind of ended up eventually three months later quitting McDonald's, starting my own PC business. I went door to door. So I was pretty good with computers about basically I could remove, make your computers faster in those days, you know, PCs were pretty slow. A lot of people had a bunch of programs running on the background. So I could just do some basic repairs and, you know, I charged like 30 bucks an hour and it was, it ended up being pretty decent. So I made a decent bit of money there. And then you also, you, you mentioned before the show, you, once you got into college, you kind of started a little book selling business. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, the first, cause I had to pay for my school books. The first thing I did was try to research all different ways to find them cheap. And I found these things called international editions basically had a different ISBN number, but the page order was the same as the regular ones, soft cover. And instead of paying $250 at the student bookstore, I could get them for $35 on like weird sites like uh, abooks.com and Altiris. There's a couple other weird websites that I found that allbookstores.com would search kind of a ton of different websites for me all at once. Uh, And so I found these cheap books on there I used them for my classes and then I would go on half.com and sell them as the regular edition and then just put in the comments, this is a soft cover international edition, but same page order. And I got no complaints from anyone. I would sell that $30 book for the going rates were, which were like $150 for a used textbook. So I was, I ended up making, I think it was like a hundred bucks roughly per book. So I made roughly $700 my first semester and said, wow, you know, not only did books not cost me anything, but I, I made 700 bucks on them. So why don't I try doing this for my roommates, for my friends, and maybe get them to get their friends. And so I, I kind of did that. I made, I think it was roughly like 30,000 in total over a couple semesters by doing that. Wow. Wow. Good for you. So I want to just jump back here before we move forward. I want to jump back to your allocation. You said you have about 28% in bonds. I'm just curious, there's probably someone young out there saying like, with such good income, right? And you're obviously spend so little and you're able to save so much. How come invest in bonds at all? Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I don't need to invest in bonds at all. I I guess for me, it's more of a mentality thing. It's not so much, you know, I'm obviously I do this for a living. So I'm not concerned about, you know, dips in the market. It's more of with this kind of allocation, even if the market dips a decent bit, I'm still probably going to be roughly a millionaire with that allocation. Obviously, it's not guaranteed, but to me, it's kind of more of a knowing that my net worth covers my expenses at any time, even if there's a market dip, is a pretty nice, you know, kind of stress reliever, I would say. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, and it's probably worth the money that I'm probably going to give up on the upside. Although, in my opinion, like I said, yeah, maybe earn 2% in bonds. I think I don't think there's a ton of, of equity upside left on average. So yeah, I'm going to pay a little bit of a price for that kind of peace of mind. Sure. And I, every new dollar will probably go into stocks as, as my net worth grows. So that allocation will probably, you know, over the next five years, everything, all new money goes to stocks. But to me, it's kind of, I made it, it's kind of a mental comfort that I can walk away from my job at any time. I'm not going to do that, but you know, job can get stressful sometimes, and it's it's kind of a nice thing to 
you know, have in the back of your head that, yeah, okay, you know, right. I kind of, I can escape, you know, if everything goes to pot, my wife quits her job, I quit my job. Uh, we don't need, we don't need to work. So it's kind of, I would say a mental relief than it is sort of a sound investment strategy, which yeah. I agree, probably everyone our age does not need to have, especially if you have a decent income and, you know, to dual incomes, especially you don't need to have anything at bonds. No, yeah, no, no, it's a good answer though. I'm just curious. So going forward here, you kind of mentioned, you know, having that safety net in your pocket or in your back pocket. Is, is there a plan to retire early? Is there a, a net worth goal? Is working full time, you know, something you don't want to do in, in the foreseeable future and short term? Yeah, that's a good question. So I've kind of juggled it around. You know, I'd say my my first naive goal was that I was going to retire early. You know, maybe it, I thought originally my goal was a million dollars and I could retire off that at 45. That was my, my goal when I was 16. Uh, now that I've kind of hit well over that, you know, I would say, and I've kind of become a little bit more mature and realized that, you know, it's not about retiring away from something. It's kind of more retiring to something. Uh, you know, it's, it's really kind of gives me, it's more about the freedom of being able to change than necessarily making a change. Uh, so, you know, I think if I identify something else that I like more or consider come up with a business opportunity that I want to pursue, that's probably what I would do. I don't know that I would ever quit working entirely. Uh, but you know, it's definitely sometimes I think about it, especially with stressful days, but you know, I, I would say probably I'll probably always keep working. I, whether that's full time, you know, I would love to get to a situation I think where I could, you know, have two months of vacation, you know, coming at 10, leave at three work, you know, four days a week. Yeah. I would love if I could find a flexible job like that, that still paid me enough to come in and make it worth my time. But it's kind of tough in the industry I'm in and, you know, probably won't find it. But if one comes up and, hey, I can go from making 170 to maybe 70, that 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 would be something I consider maybe like a research role or something like that later on. Or if I get to a point where I'd be a chief investment officer, you know, and, and the work to life balance is better, that that that's a consideration. But yeah, I would say, you know, it's not so much about retiring early. It's just about having that mental comfort that, I don't need this job kind of gives you a different level of freedom. You know, my job, it's, you know, a lot of people try to be very impressive about how long they're at their desk and all that kind of stuff. And I would say once you kind of get to a certain point with your net worth and you kind of get that mental comfort, a lot of that falls away. And if it's a really nice day, it's three o'clock and I don't have any client meetings. And, you know, for us, our, our kind of trade desk closes at three. That's when we bulk submit our orders. So for me, there's nothing to do at that point besides maybe do a little bit of busy work. So, you know, if it's a nice day, I'm just going to leave. And it's kind of nice that I can just do that. And I don't really care what people think. Um, you know, that's kind of the the peace of mind that I get from from that. A real net worth goal, though, I would say has, has really morphed into getting at least $10 million in net worth and then I would like to start a South Dakota-based dynasty trust uh, for my family. Um, and and really, this, that's pretty complex. But basically, it's a, a trust that doesn't end, uh, essentially. No, I think that's awesome. You've definitely earned you know, the privilege of getting to the point where you've got that peace of mind. Man, I got to ask, do, do your friends or your family members know of your wealth right now? Uh, so, let me think. So, my parents know of my wealth. Both of my siblings know of my wealth uh, because 
my dad and I are in like a net worth competition constantly. And so we, we always <laughs> talk about our net worth and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, what we're investing in and how much we're saving and all that kind of stuff. And how, how old are you? You're, you're like mid thirties or something. I'm 30. Okay. Oh, you're young. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wow, a little wow, young. Wow. So yeah, no, we talk about it and I talk about it with my sister and kind of, you know, she's interested in, in say, I don't think she's as extreme as I am, but she definitely saves a decent chunk of her income and is on the path. And my brother, you know, is definitely compared to his peers saving a lot more. So I think it, it helps my siblings kind of, you know, it's, it, I think it's good to, you know, I'm, I'm the oldest. So, you know, it's, it's nice to, I, I don't share everything about it, but they definitely know that, that we're well off. And, and you and your dad, you said you guys are in a competition. Is that a friendly competition or is it? Hey, oh, like, it's friendly. Yeah. Okay. I mean, he, he's pretty much, I mean, he's acknowledged that I'll eventually surpass him, but I, I just save a lot more than he does. I'm a lot more frugal. Part of that's, I, I, I don't know, part of it's, I really like to, I'm, I'm more into stoicism, kind of trying to, you know, really not desire things that don't really make me happy, really make me better. Uh, so I you know things where I spend a lot more money on are, I would say, fitness, uh, health, uh, travel and vacation. But really, because of the credit card thing, it's it's like I, I, I don't really spend a lot in vacation be- between earning those credit card bonuses and the trade lines. It kind of covers all of the vacation expenses. And I mean, we, we really spend money when we're on vacation, but, you know, it's 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 kind of tough. I wish I had more vacation days so I could spend more that way. But I mean, I, it's not like that. A lot of people look at someone that's only spending, you know, $30,000, $25,000 a year. And, you know, how, how you're like, you're depriving yourself. And I, I mean, I don't know what else I would spend money on. I, I just don't. I guess I've kind of almost trained myself not to really care about some of the things that people spend a lot of money on, like cars or big houses. I mean, I, I view it as a benefit that our house size is smaller because I don't have as much crap. <laughs> that's true. So, I mean, that's crazy to hear you talk about like, you got a million plus dollar net worth and, and you really don't have some crazy, big, hairy, audacious go out there or item you want or lifestyle dream at all. You're no, living I mean, the only things I've spent a lot of money on recently is we we bought uh, we started to buy wild salmon from Alaska, king salmon because it's pretty healthy. Uh, you know, it doesn't have as as much of like the the bad stuff in it, the PCBs in it apparently. So I did a lot of research on that. It's pretty healthy. So you know, I'm buying that that costs a decent chunk of change. And I bought like a Concept Two rower machine, a squat rack. I, I work out a lot, but yeah, I don't. I mean, there's not really major things that, that I wish I could have or I'm denying myself for no reason or depriving myself of things. I just, I mean, if I think of something that I think is going to really benefit my life, then, you know, I really, I, I stew over it for months until I can really think, is this just something that spur of the moment came to me? Or, I, you know, I really try to justify to myself, is this really going to be a benefit to me? And so, you know, I just take a long time to think about it, I guess. But yeah, I don't think there's anything else out there that I'd want. How much is the salmon from Alaska? It's about 40 bucks a pound and we'll order it in like 30 pound pour. It's like, it comes about like 200, 300 bucks per order. We order it like every other month. We just started doing that. That'll last you how long? It lasts me like a month and a half thereabouts. Okay, I gotcha. Just curious. So So you're eating some big, good king salmon then? Yeah, yeah, we do. And uh, we got the sous vide cooker. 
because uh, apparently with the omega threes, you basically if you hook, cook it on high heat, you're going to lose a lot of that benefit. So we cook it low heat. Uh, and really try to get as much of the benefit out of it nutritionally as possible. We'll try to eat salmon maybe twice a week and then, you know, whatever the rest of the week. But we, we cook a lot at home and, you know, I, I really enjoy that because to me it's, it's like you can travel but not travel. And when you kind of, you know, half of traveling is the cuisine and the culture and you know, a lot of even just culture is wrapped up in the food. So, you know, I think it's great to go. We have a lot of live near college town so we can go get any ingredient you want around here but yeah i mean it's just low cost of living i guess i i don't i just don't know what people spend money on i've tried researching it to figure out like <laughs> people that say they spend all this money and i don't understand where it's going <laughs> yeah, vacations funny. cars eating out i'll tell you what that eating out and housing you, you, I guess, I mean, yeah, I people guess buy an expensive another, house or live on the coast. Here and, it's just housing is so, I mean, so cheap is a new build townhouse. It was only like $65,000 when we bought it. And when we go out to eat around here, it's like $30 when I, in the beers, I, I could buy an IPA, for, you know, a brand name IPA for like $2. It's just, it's just really cheap around here. So, it sounds like people need to move to middle America then, huh? Yeah, I mean, it's. I, I really enjoy it. I, I mean, I guess it's it's the middle of nowhere, kind of, but yeah, and it's in middle of no, nowhere, just middle America, right? Like most people live on the coast, not yeah, it's, not it's in the not central. The coast, that's yeah, for sure. Exactly. But, but you're close you enough. Know, drive to the beach, if you really yeah, wanted to, yeah, it's nice. Totally. Does your wife? I mean, is she is involved in in the financial decisions and tracking this the spreadsheet like you do, or is she kind of just, hey, Matt, you take care of it all? Yeah. So what I'll do is just because I think that's my job. She kind of, I'm kind of the the commander of the finances, at least at least in terms of the tracking it, not really the decision so much. But what I'll do is I will. So the spreadsheet like looks that I send you looks really complicated, but it's really very automated because it all just uses Excel functions, and I just have it hooked up to Mint.com, which is automated. So all I do is export the transactions and paste them in there, and all the formulas populate. So it takes me about 15 minutes to update. I'll spend about 30 minutes a month like reviewing the results and then I'll bring her in, kind of go over the high level. Here's what we spent, especially on the discretionary items. Here's here's where we, you know, where we came out, different categories. Here's what we could get a little bit better on, more efficient on. You know, maybe we should, you know, stop. You're like, hey, month. hey, we're 30 years old. We got a net worth of 1.3. We're living off 20K, but man, we really got to cut it on the Oh yeah, on the movies Stop. this month. Well, yeah, some of it too is it's not so much the money, but it's more the health. I would say, especially eating out. You know, I'd say like you can be better. You know, I I want to get a six pack. I want to bench two twenty five. If I'm going out to eat all the time, that's not going to happen. Right. And so it's not healthier for me. I'm not going to live as long, and it costs more money. A lot of people I feel, find in America are constantly spending a ton of money going out to eat and then spending a ton of money at gym memberships trying to fix what they just created where it's like, just stop. And it, it's like, it doesn't save your time. It takes more time going out to eat. Got to go out there, wait till you get your food. It's a longer avenue for most people. So, I mean, to me, it's quicker to make a, you know, a quick meal, you know, in the sous vide, I don't, you turn it on and it, it, you know, marinate the night before, pop it in, turn it on and there it goes. And it's, I, I find things, Sometimes doing things yourself is, you know, quicker. I change my own oil mainly because it saves me more time. Now, I mean, 
I used to have to go there, sit in the room. They took like 50 minutes. Usually there's another person in front of you. You know, you just feel like kind of turdy because you don't know how to do it yourself. And then I taught myself and, you know, now I can do it in my driveway in like 30 minutes. I drink a beer while I'm doing it, listen to some rock music, and I feel more like a man. I like doing it. <laughs> Dude, we got to get you a trigger for that I changed salmon, my struts. <laughs> it's fun to learn new skills. I mean, I think people are denying themselves. It's not just a money-saving thing. I don't do it for, you know, because I can save $100 on auto expenses. Obviously, that doesn't matter. But it's cool when you can do things that people wouldn't think you could do if you're I'm a naturally nerdy type of guy. So when I can do auto maintenance, it's kind of, you know, I become a more complex, more interesting person, not to anyone else, but more of an interesting person to myself. Provides you maybe a little bit of a challenge too. Yeah. Yeah. It Initially, just makes me feel better about myself when I can yeah. do things that before in my mind were out of reach. Yeah. So high level here for your job, you shared that you're a wealth manager, portfolio manager, wealth management uh, company. What do you know, what, maybe what's advice or what do people not think about or what's a strategy that they could implement in their lives that that maybe they're not or the lesser known strategies? Is there anything that comes to mind? Well, it depends. I guess it depends on the system. I mean, there's estate planning. Once you're over the $22 million threshold, there's a couple strategies there. Not that that's going to be probably the majority of the listeners, but maybe it will be someday, especially for younger ones. That's a very real possibility. Maybe if they, the rate changes, but a lot of people, you know, it's Roth conversions when they're in a lower tax bracket in retirement. A lot of people don't think about that, but, you know, if you're in a lower bracket than when you were when you were making the pre tax contributions, try, consider converting, especially if you're near the estate tax limits. You know, even if it's the same rate, it's nice because you're prepaying the taxes and you're reducing the valuable of your taxable estate. So, you know, in, in addition to that, with the Secure Act changing, now it's, you know, if you have a huge IRA, you know, some of them, you know, clients can have five, six million dollar IRAs, leaving it to one kid. Well, if you're forced to withdraw that over 10 years, that's 600K a year in taxes. You're going to be bumped into a high bracket. So, you know, especially if you're over the $22 million threshold, and you have to come up with a state tax planning strategy, consider converting your traditional to your Roth. That's by paying the taxes, you're going to reduce the value of your state and you're essentially prepaying the taxes for your kids. So that's, you know, that's definitely something to, to think about. It's even makes sense if you're not over the estate tax limits a lot of ways. It's all about smoothing your taxable income over your life expectancy. And it's a very complex thing to think about because a lot of people don't know at age 70, am I going to have income? But, you know, ways you can think about it is, you know, you total up things you at least do know, like, do you have a pension? Do you have an annuity? You know, are, do you really have concrete plans working part-time? Do you have a bunch of rental properties? I mean, you can really tabulate, you can amortize your current pre-tax monies over when you think you're going to retire. You can kind of run projections, but it's hard to figure it out. And then you have the unknowns too, like the tax policy changing. Uh, but I would right. definitely say that's a big, big strategy to think about. The other thing that I see a lot of people not use correctly is your 529s. You know, that's something that, you know, I've seen people basically pay out of pocket for college education. And especially if your state has a state income tax deduction for contributing to a 529, you can just put it into the 529 for like three days, take it out of the 529 and get a state income tax deduction rather than directly paying the college. 
Now, you also want to think about if that's going to impact any other tax credits you're available for. But a lot of my clients, you know, on an income basis, don't qualify for them some of those tax credits. Hmm, interesting. But that I would say, you know, another common one is, you know, if you are a lot of my clients are business owners, employ your kids in your business, uh, max out the Roth IRAs starting at age like 12, early as early as you can feasibly justify them earning money. Uh, whether they're doing administrative taxes or whatever, but that's a great way to transfer money to the next generation. Uh, but really, you know, a lot of it. And then the other thing that a lot of people don't think about is tax location. Uh, you know, if you have, if you do have stocks and bonds, you know, make sure you're putting your stocks in your Roth type accounts and in your taxable accounts. Make sure you're putting your bonds in your pre-tax accounts. Your your sort of your traditional 401k IRA type of accounts, uh, because if you think about it, in 30 years. You know, obviously, stocks are probably going to grow a bit faster than bonds. So, you know, you better to locate that growth in a tax-free manner than to locate it when it's going to be taxed higher. Yep, I agree with you there. So, it, what's more advantageous in your mind if you could just contribute to a uh, five twenty-nine or a Roth IRA for your kid? Does one stand out to you over the other? I mean, I think a Roth IRA is way more flexible, but I, I don't think because just given the contribution limits, you know, I don't ne- think you should necessarily be limited to both. You know, you just save both. But I mean, if it's something where it's this or that, I would say a Roth IRA is far superior just because it's more flexible. You get the same, you know, tax-free growth, but it's way more flexible in terms of what it really can be used for. Yeah, down the line. Yeah. I'm with and the there. 529, I mean, you can always go back and make up for lost time with 529, given how big those contribution limits are. With the Roth, it's a user to lose it. So, you know, every year that you aren't doing that, that's you can't get it back. So it's this, the sooner you do it, it's it's, it's like basically saying you're getting a match. You know, you, you give it up, you're not going to get it back. Sure. So what mistakes have you made? Any financial mistakes, investing yeah, mistakes yeah. or anything you wish you would have done better? Yeah. So, the, you know, for the first thing I did, I bought like a beater Honda Civic, which was fine. It was a good deal, but I didn't probably know how to maintain my car. My dad never did auto work. No one ever told me what to do. So I wasn't changing my oil like I should have just doing stupid, just not doing the right maintenance. Didn't know how to maintain my, my car. So I'd say that was the one thing that my car, you know, like stopped working. So, you know, it was dumb. I could have had it for a lot longer. So that was one. Uh, I'd say during, you know, middle school, I got a bunch, I had summer jobs every, every year from middle school onward. Uh, and then, you know, I would blow my money on stupid things when I was a kid. And I, I wish I would have thought and had the foresight to start my Roth IRA then, or I would have a, I can't imagine how big the Roth IRA would be. I mean, yeah, it's only a couple thousand, like maybe three or $4,000 a summer, but that put into a Roth IRA that young. And when I'm going to be, you know, when I turn 60, the dollar amount that that would be, would be unreal. So that was the, that was probably the biggest was just blowing it on, you know, kid stuff, you know, you just buy really stupid stuff when you're a kid. <laughs> uh, the other thing yeah. is I didn't really work that hard in high school. I, I don't know. I just thought, you know, it was a big joke. It didn't matter. Stupid. I, I wish I would have worked a lot harder because then I would have had a better chance to get 
scholarships, I think, get into, you know, I don't know necessarily my college was bad. I, I like my college, but I definitely wish I would have at least gotten some monetary scholarships that would have helped out because uh, I kind of, I slacked off and I, I had way more potential in high school. Did way better. I worked really hard in college, but, and I got excellent grades, but high school, I, I it was a missed opportunity there. Hmm. And then I'd say the other big one was my first job. Uh, I had like, I, I think I had about 30 interviews or 40 interviews with different companies. I interviewed a lot of places just because I thought it was a very important skill to develop. Uh, and the only way you can really do it is to do it. Uh, so I took every interview, whether I, I applied to every job that I could, even if I wasn't interested in the actual job, and then just used those ones that I wasn't interested in as an opportunity to get better at interviewing. But I, I ended up with like eight or nine offers. And, uh, you know, I, I cho- ended up choosing a small company that was close to home because my wife was doing medical rotations around here. And, you know, it was a small company. And yeah, it was definitely, you know, they said, hey, yeah, it's eight to five work hours until, you know, some of it, I guess I couldn't have known. But yeah, I was working Saturdays and Sundays and 70 hour weeks. It was kind of nuts. And it was a bad culture. I'd say, you know, if you have to start out, really, really, really don't consider a small company unless you're really sure the culture is good. You know, I, I could have worked for really large companies like Honeywell, you know, Lockheed Martin. There's a couple others that had given me really good offers. They were just in a metro area. But in my mind, I did the calculation like around here, cost of living so low, near family. You know, there was a lot of benefits and there, there really were. But, you know, that was something that, you know, that was probably not the, the greatest culture. And I, I probably learned a lot more how to look up things about the company, look at the culture, because it's more than just salary minus your cost of living. You really got to consider, you know, who your boss is going to be, how the culture of that company is going to be. Uh, but then since then, I mean, I was able to transition to, an, you know, the job I'm at now, which I've loved and done really well at. So, you know, it's kind of one of those things where, it's a mistake, but it, it ended up being, you know, one of the greatest decisions of my life because it led, you know, I, because of how that job didn't go well, I, it led me to look for other jobs, led me to get a better opportunity that I found really what my passion was, which, you know, is, is, is investments. And so you know, it's kind of one of those things where, yeah, maybe I would have gone to a big company, been, you know, semi-happy and never looked anywhere else. And I, still my salary wouldn't have gone up because of that. So, you know, you just never know sometimes with that, at least with that one. But I definitely would have saved more probably in middle school. Yeah. Just before we we jump into some rapid fire questions here, has having more money increased your happiness and confidence levels at all? Uh, That's a tough one. Uh, I would say not really so much. Uh, I would say more my confidence level more kind of the dumb worrying that I used to do when I would just, you know, you get worried about getting fired, you worry about being a failure, you don't want to, you know, have to be in a bad spot financially. So, you know, it's, it's stressful, I'd say for someone just getting out of college until you start to get a serious financial cushion. I mean, it's definitely like you have to, people tell you, you know, people are jerks to you say, Hey, you got to do this. You got to do that. Like you can't push back. So I, that I would say I don't know that's necessarily happiness, but more of a stress reduction factor, yeah. kind of more of less worrying. But in terms of happiness, I'd say the biggest thing that's made me happier is just uh, you know uh, getting older, learning kind of not to not to stress about things, and I would say getting healthier. 
you know, working out every day, working out pretty religiously, eating better, spending more time with friends and family. I mean, those are the things that really have made me happier. The money has just kind of reduced some stress along the way. Yeah. And you probably just answered this. This is one of our rapid fire questions we've been asking, but what does it mean to be happy and fulfilled? That's healthy and spending time with family and friends. Yeah, I think it's all about, and it's also about your, I think your attitude about life, you know, whether you're viewing things as hat, you know, kind of, you know, either things are happening to you, you're kind of not, it's all about how you react to things, not so much what happens to you. Bad stuff happens in life, pipes break, you don't think you, you know, you find out you can't have kids naturally, or you're going to have to go through a process. And like, people can get really bummed out about that. And the way I've kind of gotten around it is like, look, you know, nothing's really bad if you don't react in a poor manner to it. You know, it's just everything is a way for you to prove that you're the better person, that you, you know, are not going to bear it, you know, ignobly. So in my opinion, you know, it's a philosophy of life is very important too. you know, how you look at things. So, you know, stoicism has been, at least for me, a kind of a good way to a lot of wisdom there, not to, you know, kind of how you react to things in your mindset, you know, will really determine whether something really is bad or it isn't. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's jump into these. So what's been the most expensive car you've ever purchased? Uh, that would be my 2011 Camry for nine grand. My, my, I think my Civic was, was like five or six. So I upgraded a little bit, but that's about the expensive as it's gotten. <laughs> okay. What about most expensive pair of shoes? Expensive pair of shoes. I bought some good running that kind of ties back to the fitness thing. I bought uh, some good Asics for like 130 bucks and they're good running shoes make me feel better. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't mind sporting money where it helps me with my health. Okay. What about the meal out? Most expensive meal out that you've personally paid for? I think that was when we were in in the Netherlands. Forget what city it was when we were on vacation. Uh, basically, it was like I think it was like two. It ended up being two hundred and twenty bucks. There was like a sommelier, which is the first time I ever had one of those. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I don't. When we're on vacation, we're we're going out, and I'll 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 go whatever whatever it costs. I don't really care. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think you kind of mentioned this earlier. What's worth spending more money on to you is fitness and, and health and travel, right? Yeah. Fitness, health and travel. You know, I think those have been some of the, the biggest, you know, the memory, the best memories I've had. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's great to be wealthy, but, you know, a huge deal is, is health for me. And it's, you know, especially turning 30, you kind of like wake up call that you're not in your twenties anymore. And, you know, you start to get gray hair, your back starts to hurt a little bit more. So yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> health, health is, uh, health is important. So that's yeah. something I'm really, it makes me feel better. And, uh, I don't, I, I don't mind dropping a thousand here, a thousand there, if it's going to make me healthier long-term. Yeah. Where's your favorite place to which you've traveled? That's a good one. Uh, you know, I really enjoyed, I would say I really enjoyed the countryside of Paris and the countryside of Germany. Those were really kind of nice relaxing we went to a lot of different wine places a lot of different breweries uh you know i i just really enjoyed the scenery the people it's just very very relaxing that's second to that i would say the netherlands and belgium it's very similar culture and yeah i mean just long there's something about having a three-hour dinner two-hour dinner that is very relaxing so i just the culture is very nice taking bike rides to the countryside yeah, I I really like that. I would say Europe is definitely a spot that 
you know, has a warm spot in my heart because it's really, really fun. Nice. Um, let's see. We talked about that. Have you ever used a financial advisor? No, just because I, I am and that would be weird. But I do I do get a lot of information from, you know, attorneys that I work with, you know, they're giving it to clients in the context of estate planning. I pick up a lot that way, you know, not so much. And then I do a lot of research myself online. So no, I don't really use a financial advisor essentially because I am one. Yeah. Okay. Debt. Did you ever have any debt? Student debt, car loans, credit cards? Yeah. So my wife had about $70,000 in student debt. Uh, We had, when we did the home, we did had about $50,000 in home debt. That was the only, I've never really had, I've never paid a dime of credit card interest or anything like that. Uh, but that's the debt that we've had. Uh, now we don't really, the student loans have slowly worked themselves off after time. Uh, we, I just finished paying off the last one because it was only like $1,000. But uh, yeah, we, we're right now, we don't have any debt. Uh, and we, we're probably not, I don't see a reason to in the future. But I would say if the market really had a correction or a recession, I would probably you know, do a, a line on my investment portfolio. I do a home equity line. I would lever the heck up and invest in the market. Uh, but to me, at these these return, you know, these valuations, it's just not compelling to do kind of a levered investment type of approach right now. Yeah, but, but I'm not. I don't abhor debt like some people are. You know, Dave Ramsey item. Definitely not that type of person. Okay, and then any favorite books or websites or you know financial tools that you use that you'd recommend? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I definitely recommend my spreadsheet. I, I get, I have a, a template <laughs> if people are interested in it that, that I can share and they're welcome to it. Uh, but I would say, you know, different podcasts are really great ways. I, I drive a lot for work. So I, I listen to a lot like Paula Pant, obviously this podcast, I, I like this one a lot because it's just ordinary everyday people it's not like a horde of bloggers that are trying to self-promote. So I, I think that's great that you guys give a voice to people that necessarily aren't bloggers. It's kind of a lot of everyday people, which is really cool. You know, White Coat Investor, I think, is really unique and interesting for high-income people. Uh, a lot of stuff is applicable there. Bigger Pockets has a nice real estate perspective. Listen to Estate Planning TV, as well as uh, the Fundamentals of Estate Planning podcast. They're good for... They're kind of lesser known because a lot of people won't focus on that, but there's a lot of good info there. Uh, help with my social security. I use that for clients, so I've become really good and well-versed on that. Mad Scientist. I mean, there's really a lot of finance, personal finance Facebook groups that I would definitely suggest people get in. And not so much because you're going to find all kinds of useful information, but go on there and just help answer other people's questions and you know, just do the research and help answer other people's questions. And you'll learn more from that than you would mm. asking questions about your own research. Cause I mean, you're not going to, I've, I've found that you don't learn so much about questions you would have, but when you have a diverse pe- amount of people asking questions and you're actively doing research to answer them, you're going to learn way more as a teacher. So I'd say definitely try to volunteer your time. If you have a little bit of help there a lot of people were way worse off and, and you learn all kinds of new things when people have unique situations like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, Matt, thanks for your time. We've taken enough of it. So we'll cut it off here. Net worth of, of over 1.3 million. Thanks for coming on the show tonight. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. 
See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire. 